Hi, everyone. I'm Kevin Neubauer, a partner in the investment management group at Seward & Kissel. The investment management practice, which is one of the largest in the industry, works with investment managers of, across all strategies and sizes. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Fundraising Focus Series. In this series, we talk to different individuals and firms that are involved in the capital raising process for private funds. Today, we are very pleased to be joined by Jess Larson, founder and CEO of Briarcliff Credit Partners, the first placement agent dedicated to private credit. Jess, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me on, Kevin. I'm, I'm privileged. Great. So before we jump in, uh, why don't you start off by telling us a bit about your background and about Briarcliff. You know, interestingly, I got introduced to private credit all the way back in, in 2006. And this is a time where it was before it was really called an asset class private credit. I, I was working in London with, with Merrill Lynch where I was, I was heading up uh, the European Family Office Group delivering investment banking services to the largest uh, families across Europe. And it was very interesting, interesting to see how the majority of the investment services that we are involved in were really all around structuring illiquid financing solutions. And those types of solutions is what we today would classify and call private credit. And after being in London for a number of years, I moved to Dallas, Texas to join a firm called Highland Capital Management. And Highland was at the time an $18 billion as a manager within the credit space, everything from private credit to illiquid credit. And my job there was to head up the institutional business in, in, in regards to building new strategies, new products, as well as running sales and marketing. After having four great years in Dallas, Texas, we moved up to New York where we are today. And the reason for moving to New York was I joined, I joined a global placemate um, as an equity partner and the CEO of the US business. And, and while I was there, I, I made a couple of observations that led me to to launch Briarcliff. And let me just kind of share those observations with you. You know, since 2006 and, and up to when I was running the placemaking business in the US, I noticed that the private credit industry has grown significantly to become a trillion dollar asset class that is still growing and is anticipated to be a trillion five by 2025. The other thing I kind of observed was the market has become rather competitive. Today, we have over 2,000 private credit GPs. The LPs on the other side of the table have become very sophisticated. And in, in the US, we are seeing that two-thirds of the LPs have a dedicated investment team focusing on private credit. That was not the case just five years ago, where it was often part of the private equity team or even the fixed income team. So the LPs have become very sophisticated. And despite the fact that the GPs have become a competitive market with 2,000 of them, and the LPs have been becoming very sophisticated, the, the placemate in business is still typically a generalist approach where the salespeople uh, or the placemate in organizations do their best to service both constituencies with, you know, in, across infrastructure, private equity, private credit, hedge funds, real estate, direct deals, primary funds, and secondaries. It is very difficult in a sophisticated and competitive market to really have in-depth and technical knowledge of your asset class if you're trying to straddle five or six different asset classes. And how can you ask your sales team to build 
deep and long-lasting relationships with ULPs across so many asset classes. And sitting and, and noticing all of these different dynamics outside of our window, so to speak, it led me to, to set up Brightcliffe Credit Partners as probably the only dedicated private credit placemate in the industry. You know, there's 1,700 placemates, but we're probably the only one that's absolutely uh, dedicated to the asset class. I think by being dedicated, you allow yourself to really understand the strategies of the GPs. You really allow yourself and set yourself up to build long-lasting relationships and more trusted relationships with the LP community. At Briarcliff, we focus not only on, on private credit strategies, but we focus on the proven strategies that are able to deliver mid-teens return. And that's a little different. It's a little different in the sense that 40 to 50% of private credit still is direct lending. Direct lending is a great asset class, but what we're trying to do here is to find strategies that can complement the private credit uh, investments from the LP side. So we have to look for more niche differentiated yet proven strategies. Now, we see about 50 GPs on a quarterly basis and our kind of selectivity rate, so to speak, is around four to 5% in terms of who we think are right for us to bring out to our LPs. So that's a little bit about the focus at the firm and, and the reason why we're setting it up. <laughs> Excellent. So, you know, you, you touched on this, um, but obviously there's been rapid growth in the private credit space over the last, you know, five, 10 years. What do you attribute that to? Why do you think that is? I think there's more than one answer to, to that. But if we, let's start with the LPs, which is what, where I think we should all really start. And the LPs, the institutional investors, typically have an internal uh, performance hurdle of 7 to 8% i.e. they need to return or make a return on their investments about seven to eight percent. And the question is, where do you go to find that type of returns? And we are now considering that we're probably out of a long-term bull market and we should probably be expecting something around six percent for the for the equity market. We've also seen that hedge funds have had good returns over the last 12-18 months, but over the last decade it has not always lived up to the investors' expectations. And in a low in, uh, interest rate environment, you have to ask yourself, where can I find these seven to 8% returns? And we see that private equity is an industry that is still going from strength to strength, and they still very much deliver what the LPs are asking for. And no wonder that they are, we are seeing more and more capital flowing into the private equity side. But we can't have all our money in private equity. Um, and that's where private credit come in and play a very important role. When investing in private credit, you do get or you do enjoy a better downside protection of, of being in the, in the credit side um, rather than at the bottom of the capital structure on the equity side. Another thing I find has been a very um, appealing attraction of private credit is that most funds actually offer a current income as well as having shorter duration, whereas a private equity fund will often be around the 10-year uh, time per period, private credit can be as short as five to seven years. So you have shorter duration, you have income payments, you have that downside protection. And that is a great attraction to LPs that are trying to deliver or trying to meet that seven to 8% hurdle. And when you look at private credit, as we'll be talking about today, there are many opportunities to find strategies and managers 
uh, can deliver north of that 8%, significantly north of that 8%. And I think as long as private credit right, is able to deliver those benefits to the LPs, we will continue to see a growth of, of private credit. Those are the reasons why it is it went from being a cottage industry over a decade ago to a trillion dollars a day and a trillion five in four or five years and beyond that. We'd be remiss if we didn't speak about the impact of COVID. <laughs> um, you know, we, we spoke to, you know, particularly a little over a year ago in the spring of 2020, a number of um, direct lending fund managers who, you know, had believed that they made investments in really solid, strong companies. And they did, except no one accounted for a circumstance where all of a sudden these solid companies found themselves in a zero revenue environment. Um, you know, and we know how that's played out to a large degree. You know, things recovered faster than, than we expected. In other, in other areas, things have recovered slower than expected. Um, but how has it affected investor appetite for private credit? And how have you seen you know, investors in their diligence processes um, account for you know, th that few month period? Yes, it is a question um, that often comes up and often, and, and a question we certainly have to address because not only was, was and is COVID still tough for everybody on the planet, but it's obviously had a, an impact on, on the LP community as well. Private credit for the majority has really held up very well. Performance-wise, we haven't seen any major hiccups. Um, I think the um, having that downside protection of protection of the credit side has really uh, been a benefit during COVID. Um, and I think a lot of the GPs have done a great job in protecting the LPs capital. That's one thing. The other thing is, is when we look back at 2020, it is, um, it is very encouraging to see that it was actually the best fundraising year for private credit. So in 2020, um, $166 billion was raised for private credit strategies. And to put that in perspective, that is 15% higher than the second best fundraising year, which was in 2019. So from all intents and purposes, private credit had held up very well, still delivering um, what they have, what they have promised the LPs. And not only that, we have seen an increasing amount of capital flowing into to the COVID, uh, during the COVID period, which is very positive. And your second question of how that has affected or how the LPs have allocated during how, how, how do LPs think about that now? Do they, do they do anything different as a result? Are there lessons learned, in other words, um, from an LP's perspective? It, it, it was very challenging for, for LPs during, during COVID. Um, in order to do a proper due diligence, uh, you need to meet with the managers um, in person more than once in order to make an allocation. Um, and COVID obviously prevented us all from, from meeting in person. It prevented us meeting our family and friends, and it certainly also prevented the investors to, to meet the managers. But that did not held, hold the investors back. On the contrary, what they did was they took a very um, intelligent approach and looked at the managers that they have already met pre-COVID. Um, and we certainly see that when we start to look at the concentration levels of where did the capital actually go during COVID. And it is probably less surprising to see that the top 50 um, of the private credit GPs 
the top 50 attracted 92% of all the capital from the LPs. It's simply because these are GPs that they have probably met in the past and have had a relationship with, and their size and the fact that these GPs have been in the market for, for decades gives a certain level of comfort. That 92% is the highest we've ever seen in private credit. That number typically sits around 68 to 70%. That has certainly been one of the um, outcomes of, of COVID. And I think that is a short-term outcome. And we can talk about it a little later, but it's certainly not what we see going forward. The other things we saw, saw was in terms of investor appetite, um, there was still a strong appetite for direct lending. It was a good time to go into direct lending into COVID times. But we also have been waiting for a long time to see some signal of a potential distress cycle, or at least a stressed cycle. We're just coming off a 10-year bull market. And COVID, certainly the early days of COVID, showed signs of a potential distress cycle. And, we, and as a consequence of that, we saw a record number of, of capital and LPs investing into these distress managers. So direct lending and distress funds were certainly the winners um, of, of the COVID period. You know, you, you described how LPs favored established relationships, you know, more last year than in any other prior year. That was certainly consistent with our clients' experience generally as well. Um, you know, it would be intuitive then as, we, as we're coming out of this, or at least we ho are hopefully coming out of this, that there might be an uptick in first-time fund managers, um, you know, given that there's the expectation that institutional investors are now more comfortable um, forming new relationships with managers. Um, I guess a couple questions on that point. You know, with respect to first-time fund managers, does Briarcliff work with them? And, and what are some of the, if so, what are some of the challenges you face with them in the private credit market specifically? Well, first, I, I like to uh, certainly share your optimism. I do hope as we come <laughs> out uh, of COVID, uh, we will be able to meet in person again. And I, I think that would allow the LPs to look at, certainly at maybe at younger managers. We at Briarcliff do not work necessarily with first-time managers. We, we're looking for proven strategies. So proven strategies also implies a, a proven track record. So we tend to work with managers that are on their fund three, four, or five. In some cases, some people will classify that as a younger manager, but ne not necessarily a first-time or newborn, so to speak. And I think it's, we, I think the LP community share that view with us that yes, it is time to look at other strategies and direct lending um, and, and distress. I think it is time to rectify that lack of balance we had through COVID where the, the concentration level was so high with the top 50. Do I think that will go to first-time managers? I think it's still a challenging environment for first-time managers. Um, we are having a record number of funds in the market. Currently, as you and I are talking here, there are, according to Prequent, there's about 642 private credit GPs out there raising assets. So it is a very competitive market. Um, I think we will see a lot of capital go to more niche and sector-specific type strategies, not necessarily um, an explosion of first-time managers. Um all right, so pivoting a bit, you know, you guys have been busy. Um, your firm started in COVID, during COVID, right, as I understand. 
Um, and I understand you're meeting with, you know, you've had hundreds of meetings since then virtually, presumably, as opposed to um, what you're probably more used to historically. Um, you know, from your perspective, you know, both as a, as a fundraiser in the private credit space and also from the LP space, how has this, you know, uh, this, this tilt toward virtual meetings helped you? Is it, is it the kind of thing where it's frustrating insofar as you can't make that personal connection? Or is it satisfying insofar as you can have 10 meetings in a day with people all over the world? It's a double-edged sword. Um, it really is, Kevin. Uh, on one hand, I, uh, as well as most other people, um, enjoy that personal interaction. And, and I think it's very important in a, in, a, in a business setting as well as in a social setting. You'd certainly build trust faster in, in, a, in a real life personal setting. So that has, that has been, as you called it, a bit of frustration, not just for us, but I'm sure for, for everybody else. On the other hand, with video meetings has certainly allowed us all to be very efficient with our day. It's very efficient indeed. The challenge comes at some point, you do need that in-person interaction. You do need to build that trusted relationship by meeting each other in person. Today, I, I was, as I was speaking to, to an LP, and one of the things we were discussing as a next step in his interaction with a, with a GP, and, um, and the comment was, I've now met them a few times over Zoom, and I'm, I'm immensely impressed. But for us as an institution, uh, we do need to meet them in person in order to get more comfortable. We do need to see the body language. We do need to build a relationship. Yeah, we'll see. I guess the interesting thing will be, you know, if someone waved a magic wand and caused COVID to go away, you know, whether we would still be relying on, on Zoom. I, I suspect that I suspect that we will to a degree, to, certainly to a greater degree than we, than we were a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. So, you know, pivoting a bit, um, AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, recently conducted a survey as part of their Alternative Credit Council. And the results indicated that, um, and this I think is consistent with a bit of what you've said, 42% of respondents are planning to increase allocations to specialty finance and direct lending. Um, with respect to those two, you know, sort of sub-strategies within the private credit space generally, are you seeing um, an uptick in interest? I'm thinking specifically with respect to specialty finance. This is kind of consistent with what you said before about kind of more idiosyncratic strategies or where a manager has a specific edge. Um, has that been consistent with what you've seen? It, it has, yes. And I, I'm, I'm glad that um, um, other people will share our opinion um, and, and forecast for the future. We, we do speak um, as an organization, yeah, we do speak to um, multiple uh, private credit investors on, on, a, on a daily basis. Um, and based on that, there's certainly trends that are, that are clear to us. Um, and that is, well, direct lending will continue to be a core um, investment for private credit. And, and I think it should be. However, what we are finding that there are, there are three other areas that are on top of mind for, for the LPs in order to complement the direct lending exposure. One of them is specialty finance. So we would certainly agree. We, uh, we do see an increase in demand and conversations around specialty finance. What we are also seeing is um, quite an uptick in, in demand for asset-backed strategies. In, a, in an environment 
where we are getting concerned about inflation risk and an asset bank will to a certain extent give you some inflation hit. Uh, so there is no doubt a, a, an increased demand for, for assets. And in a situation where COVID could extend and, and corporate cash flows could be further challenged, it is a, um, a very strong downside protection to have that asset bank type strategy and collateral. So asset bank is, is probably equally in demand as we see in specialty finance. And within corporate, corporate credit, we're still seeing demand. Demand, demand has just changed itself a little bit. So within the corporate credit sector, we are, we're seeing an increased demand for, for more niche sectors, for sector specialists, sectors that are not just underserved, but probably unserved from, for, from, uh, for capital, where borrowers really can't find any alternative um, and are looking for, for that capital. And so there, one of the things that we're doing here is certainly looking for those very niche strategies within the corporate credit sector. And a niche strategy could be the intersection of government and IT, or it could be within the food and ag sector. So sectors that are very specialized, regulatory, cumbersome, and areas where uh, it, there's a very high uh, barrier to entry. Um, so we are seeing a, a growing demand for, for specialist and niche, uh, niche players within the corporate credit sector. Now we speak to 50 private credit GPs on a quarterly basis. And I can tell you finding GPs that can deliver proven track records and proven strategies in the mid-teens types range within that asset bank space and specialty finance or sector specialist corporate credit is not an easy task. It really isn't. And I can understand why LPs are looking and searching. Um, but have, having that luxury from our seat to see what equates to 200 a year, we are able to give our LPs a little bit more of a market mapping type conversation and, uh, and dialogue rather than just selling the number of mandates that we have on, on our roster at the moment. Um, and, and that's created a, a very different dialogue that I have been used to in, in my career. Is we all looking for the same. We all appreciate it. it's very difficult. We just have that little bit of an advantage that we are so focused on private credit that we just see more than most other people. We see more than most consultants. We see more than most LPs. So the dialogue is a lot more about information sharing and sharing the pain of finding the right ones. Um, but they're out there. We just need to turn a lot of stone. Yep. Well, you know, last question. Given that edge, right? Given, given how much you, how much time you spend looking at private credit funds, speaking to private credit GPs and LPs, um, what are what's your advice for managers that you are working with, or managers who reach out to you looking to work with you? Um, what's your advice to them as to how to, you know, have a successful fundraise? I guess that's a million dollar question or, <laughs> or, or in many cases, the billion dollar question. Um, you know, the, the market, is, as we mentioned earlier, the market has become very competitive. We have a historically number, high number of credit GPs out there. And we're certainly seeing a historically um, high amount of, of private credit GPs out there raising, raising capital. It's certainly, it, it is more than twice as many as we had last year. Um, 
So there's a lot of optimism amongst GPs, but the market has become immensely uh, competitive. Com if you combine that with, with, with another factor of the complexity of private credit strategies, there is a very broad set and an increasingly broad set of private credit strategies out there. And a lot of them are very complex. So the complexity is high. And at the same time, the LPs are becoming very, very sophisticated. As we mentioned earlier in our conversation, two thirds of the US institutional investors have a dedicated team to private credit. So the GPs that are out there raising capital at the moment, the 642 of them, are finding themselves in a market that is highly competitive, very, very complex indeed. And then they are facing off to very sophisticated investors that can ask all the right questions, and they do. So come back to your question, so what do you do? Because you obviously want to be one of the few of, that will actually be successful in raising assets. So we talk very much about the five Ps here at, at Brighton. So one of the places where, where the GPs should start in, um, in, in the fundraising is thinking about your funds and your strategies positioning. And that really means how will your strategy meet your LP's goal better than your competitors? This is very different from the classical USPs. The USPs are very focused about yourself. Positioning your fund is more focused about your LP's needs in comparison to your competitors in the market. So there's a triangle rather than just talking about your USPs. We're not really talking about changing a product. What we're talking about here is changing the way the investors perceive your product. And that's where we all need to start in a fundraising is how do we actually position our product? An LP will receive about 600 salespeople's phone calls and they're busy and don't have time to take all these phone calls. So as a salesperson, you probably get 20 to 30 seconds to position your fund. So you need to be very concise and crystal clear in the way you position your fund. The next step you need to think about now knowing how to position your fund is, who do I want to position it to? I.e., which prospects should I be calling upon? In the old days when the private credit market counted fewer LPs in the private credit market, it was easier to reach out very broadly. But we now, now found ourselves in a situation where there's probably around 6,000 private credit LPs globally investing into this asset class. No sales team in the industry is big enough to really cover 6,000. And those 6,000 of them, will they all be relevant for your product? No, they will not. So as a GP, you need to start thinking before you, you launch your fundraise, what is an ideal prospect look for us? Who are the most likely to be attracted to our strategy? You could spend your whole fundraise calling upon, upon the wrong prospects and not raising money. To give you an example, I spoke to a, 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 a GP that has over $100 billion of assets, and we were talking about the frustrations and the complexity of raising assets nowadays. And they mentioned that they had reached out to over 10,000 LPs. Now, the question is, there aren't 10,000 LPs. And if there really were, do you really think one can competently having a dialogue with, with 10,000 LPs? It is probably not the right approach. 
it is very important and it is critical that one starts at really making, doing the due diligence of what are, who are the right prospects for us to talk to. And that's really where you want to start early on. Now, when you have your positioning and you have the prospects, the next thing you need to do is you need to actually pitch your product. And you tend to get 45 minutes to pitch your product to an LP. For you, this is probably the only time, or it could very well be the only time in the, in the fundraise where you actually control the narrative. Because if the LP likes it, they will start doing due diligence, so they will be controlling the flow of information. So this is probably your only time to really control the narrative. So it's highly important that 45 minute pitch. Yet for an LP, you are number 300 that is going to pitch them. So you're probably not the most important meeting on their calendar for that day. Not only that, the LPs have had all the intentions of reviewing and discussing your materials before the meeting, but it's highly unlikely that they really had the time. So when you walk in there, you need to make sure that you can pitch very efficiently. This is your only chance. There is no second chance in these pitches. So it's very important that you have a strong preparation of your pitch. And not only that, you really need to focus on how do I deliver the pitch? A GP's ability to deliver is just as important as the content of the pitch. So there is a increasingly focus on, on delivery manners um, and how that is, is done. Another thing that we talk to our GPs about, pitching is a little bit like baseball. You have to cover all four bases. You can't jump from one from base one to, to the fourth base and think you won the game or won a point. That's not how it works. There are four bases you have to cover in every single pitch. You've got to talk about your organization and your team. You have to talk about your strategy, the opportunity set and the execution of that strategy. You will need to discuss the track record. And you need to talk about capital formations, i.e., who are your other LPs and how much are you looking to raise and what time of what terms you will offer your LPs. So the four bases in your, in your pitch is organization, strategy, track record, and capital formation. And you can't skip one. You have to cover all four. The last P is the process. If you ask a, any GP, they'll have a beautiful slide showing the investment process. But your fundraising process is equally important. As we go on a road, on a road trip with our family, we do sit down and actually look at the maps and try to figure out how do I get from, from home to the holiday destination. We map out the, the roadmap. And we need to do the same when we start a fundraise. We need to figure out exactly what does the process look like? What will investors ask us for at what time and in what period of the fundraise? How do we best execute it? So when you leave the door and start your fundraising, you need to have a roadmap to get to your final close. If you don't have a roadmap of getting to your final close, how are you going to get there? So to sum that up, you need to have very strong positioning. You need to have very strong prospect selection. You need to be able to pitch. You need to be able to have a, a well thought out process. And those are kind of the very critical elements of, of a fundraise. Excellent. That's, it must be incredibly helpful advice for a manager embarking on this process. So thanks for, thanks for sharing with our audience. Um, Jess, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your insights on this episode of Fundraising Focus. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate the listeners taking the time 
uh, to learn from Jess as well. Um, for everyone else, um, stay tuned for the future for future fundraising focus episodes. And Jess, lastly, thanks again and congrats on the launch of Briarcliff. Looking forward to uh, watching the great things you accomplish. Thank you very much for inviting me, Kevin. I, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you and enjoyed it. <laughs>